listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. It's a long gospel reading tonight. That's why we had the two voices. There was a lot to hear, a lot to absorb. The architects of the lectionary have set things so that over four Sundays in Lent, we're challenged to hear long sections from the gospel according to John. Last week it was Nicodemus. This week the story of the Samaritan woman. Next Sunday it's a story of a blind man's healing, a healing which actually triggers an intense dispute with the Pharisees. The Sunday after that, the story of the raising of Lazarus. Each of these stories is actually unique to John. Each presents extended dialogue between Jesus and the other characters in the scene. And each is full of wordplay. Tonight's reading, no exception. It's also very characteristic of John as a gospel writer. His is the last of the four Gospels to be written, and it's the one with the sort of the longest view of the meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Right from the opening chapter, the opening prologue, which celebrates the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, it's clear that John's project is distinct from that of the other three Gospelers. He moves episodes around quite freely. He he places the cleansing of the temple very close to the beginning of the gospel rather than close to the end as a kind of a culmination. He has Jesus visiting Jerusalem not just at the end of his ministry, but three times over the course of it. He alone writes of that deep, aching doubt of Thomas And John alone offers that closing story of of Peter needing to reconcile with Jesus with that threefold, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? It's John who writes of Jesus washing the disciples' feet at the Last Supper and yet doesn't even mention bread and wine. What you need to acknowledge is that John has this sort of long view And he's not attempting to offer anything like a biography in a modern sense, but rather a proclamation of who Jesus is. In this, John is a poet. He's an imaginative theologian. He's an artist of imagery and words. Doesn't make it any less true. In fact, what he offers is some of the deepest truth thirsted for by the people of God. I like this story that we tell tonight. I'm really struck by how Jesus almost casually knocks over a series of social conventions and deeply rooted prejudices. He's not supposed to be talking with a woman, not in public like that, but never mind. He not only speaks with this woman, he engages her in a real conversation, a kind of of an ironic dialogue. He's a Jew. He's not supposed to be speaking, dealing with a Samaritan. But never mind. They talk. And in the end, he goes back to town with her where where he stays for two days. Imagine. 
Imagine what was going through the minds of the disciples. We're staying where? With them? Not only do they stay, but Jesus offers to this Samaritan community his teachings. Now, in a cultural context that was all about exclusion and division, he offered them a kind of a radical inclusion. It's like a lived expression of Paul's declaration that in Christ there is no longer male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. He actually kind of lives that in that community with them. I like this Samaritan woman as well. I like her edge. She's got some nerviness, right? This apparent complete lack of anything resembling intimidation. And she's got a bit of a past. On that, John is abundantly clear. Actually, she doesn't just have a past. She, she clearly has a bit of a present, too. She's been married how many times? And now she's living with the man, and she's not married to him yet. Now, that would have cost her dearly in that cultural context. Maybe it's the reason she has that edge, that toughness. It comes from having to steel herself against the judgment of others from the village. She's got that kind of strength. You know, exclusion and judgment uh, do one of two things. They either kind of crush people down or they make them real strong, real edgy. She's edgy. When Jesus asks this woman to give him a drink of water from the well... She doesn't avert her eyes. She doesn't back away, refusing to speak with him, which is what she should have done. That's what the social mores would have dictated. No. Instead, she replies, apparently with full confidence, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? And from here, they're into this conversation marked by all kinds of wordplay. Now, as N.T. Wright describes it, the dialogue is a long string of double meanings and misunderstandings. And then Bishop Wright even wonders, did John actually intend it, perhaps to sound funny, a semi-comic scene with a serious point hidden among the to and fro of the repartee? like some of Shakespeare's clown scenes? I think that's a really, really good question, really interesting way of looking at how John presents this story. All of the back and forth about water, water from Jacob's well, and then it's living water, and water that so quenches your thirst you never need to drink again. She's assuming one thing as they're talking, and then Jesus replies out of this other deeper place, and she comes part of the way along in understanding him, and and it's all sort of back and forth. It's comic, and it's dramatic, and it's playful. I, I actually think they're both smiling. That's what we're supposed to see. See them both smiling as the conversation unfolds. He's smiling because he knows he's drawing her towards that water she most needs. And she's smiling because she needs to keep her guard up, her edge up. And she likes the kind of the little bit of scrappiness here. But also because she can sense that there is something very real 
and very good in his words. And then comes that question about her husband. I love N.T. Wright's presentation, so I'm going to read it to you. He says, repartee again. Call your husband. Haven't got one. No, five down, one to go. Oops, change the subject. Are you a prophet by any chance? We have this thing about which mountain we should worship on. Objection overruled. Spirit, not mountain, is what matters. And the one God is looking for spirit people right now. Oh, very interesting. Of course, one day the Messiah is coming. He'll explain all that complicated stuff. Phew, let's not get too far with this. Pause. No way off the hook. Jesus holds her gaze. I am. Who am speaking to you? Messiah. I am. End of repartee. Time for action. Sower and reaper are about to rejoice together. Well, by this time, the disciples have arrived, and they are astonished to find Jesus talking with this Samaritan woman. And with their arrival, she's immediately off to town. She leaves so quickly that her water jug is still sitting there. She needs to tell of what has happened. And while she's absent, John offers another conversation marked by all kinds of wordplay, this time with those poor, astonished disciples. This time it's about food, not water, but it's essentially the same sort of conversation. They're thinking he must be hungry and needs something to eat, and he replies by talking about having already been fed, already fed through doing the will of God who'd sent me. And all the while, as John is presenting this, he wants his readers to to kind of eavesdrop and to delight because the readers, because we know right from the opening verses of the prologue to John's gospel, we know more about Jesus than do these poor searching disciples. And then right away, that woman is back. She's accompanied by others from her town. And they're asking Jesus to stay with them. They're thirsty too. And they want to know about this living water. What they really want to know about, though, is what has put such light into the eyes of that woman. That woman they had considered disgraceful and of questionable reputation and had pushed aside. She goes alone to the well at midday. That's not when women go to the well. You go in a group early in the morning and you gather water for the day. She's gone alone at midday because no one will go with her. She has been pushed out like that because of the way she's been living and she comes and they see this light in her eyes and they want it. Jesus goes back with them and he spends two days In their community, he and the disciples, the dividing lines fall. Old prejudices just evaporate. The light that they've seen in that woman's eyes was real. 
exclusion is trumped by this radical and generous inclusion. And over those two days, that community can hear it in Jesus' words, they can see it in his face, and they can feel it in their own souls. Two days. Now that means that we can be pretty sure that that woman did come and offer Jesus cups of water to drink. And we can be pretty sure that Jesus and his oh-so-Jewish disciples did sit down with Samaritans and eat Samaritan food from Samaritan dishes. They had to swallow their own deeply rooted prejudices before they could swallow that food. It's often the way when Jesus challenges us. So with that grand, kind of comic, sort of lovely, slightly unnerving story in the background, look at the empty chair behind me on the stairs and ask yourself those questions it's meant to symbolize for us over Lent. Who needs a place at this table and how can we make space? Whose absence are you particularly aware of in this season, whether here or in your life generally? And what are the parts of our own selves that we can withhold from the welcoming presence of our inveterately hospitable Lord? What pieces maybe make us ashamed or afraid? Sit with the questions for a minute. And remember, Jesus sat down and broke bread with Samaritans. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.